Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Alan Bollard, Professor of Practice at the School of Government in Victoria University in Wellington, and former Governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. We're discussing his book, Economists at War, How a Handful of Economists Help Win and Lose the World Wars. Economists at War profiles seven economists who worked and acted during major wars from 1935 to 1955. These economists hailed from China, Japan, Germany, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and the United States, respectively. Allen weaves a history of the tumultuous period around these men, showcasing how economics shaped and was shaped by war. Alan, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Yes, good day, Caleb. It's great to have you on the program, and you know you've had you've had a very long, interesting career. Um, not not this kind of standard career um, of an academic, but you've done and in, in gone and written a very interesting history book. But before Going into that, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Well, I'm a New Zealand economist. Um, yes, I've I've been involved in quite a lot of policy stuff in New Zealand. I used to run our antitrust justice department division. Then I ran our New Zealand treasury, so that's fiscal policy. And then, as you said, governor of the Reserve Bank, so that's monetary policy. And then I had a chance to go offshore and run the APEC organization in Singapore. So I'm in New Zealand. Um, part-time professor and doing a bunch of other things. And I've um, been lucky to have had that quite mixed sort of career. And as far as the book is concerned, how did the idea for it first come about? Oh, well, I've always enjoyed reading um, economics and reading economic biographies as well. And to me, they also have to be interesting. They're, the more interesting the background of the of the person and the well-written it is, then the more I'm going to read them. And, you know, there's, there's been books like Lords of Finance was a pioneering one about central bank governors in the 1920s. Um, if it's set against an interesting background and there's a bunch of people who are sparking off one another, then that all makes for a very interesting story. So I, I've written this book and I'm, I'm about to publish another one on the Cold War uh, because I'm interested in them and because they're interesting people. And if they don't interest me, then they're not going to interest so the first person that you write about in the book is former Japanese finance minister Takahashi Korkio. Uh And I was wondering, you know, why he was such an extraordinary man, in your opinion, and what ultimately led to his demise uh, in the prelude to World War II. Yeah, well, he was an interesting man, and he's um, someone still looked up to in Japan, but not really known outside. He was brought up um, illegitimate, rough upbringing, um, was, on, was a gang member on the streets of Tokyo, went off and became a sort of indentured labor in the state, um, but came back and he was he he had no formal economic training, but an incredible ability to learn languages and learn from other people. And the Japanese in the end um, used him to uh, go out to the financial markets in Europe during the Russian-Japanese war in 1904-1905, and he managed to raise very successfully a very large amount of money that allowed the Japanese Navy to basically defeat the Russian Navy, which had implications like bringing down the Tsar in the end. So he was very important there. He later became um, central bank governor, and he then he became minister of finance a number of times in Japan. It was a very complex, difficult time in Japan when there were a number of, of assassinations, rise of militarism, parts of the army and navy couldn't really be controlled. And he did a lot of work trying to control spending against the pressure of a lot of army generals who were determined to raise more money and spend it so they could invade Southeast Asia, basically, and get resources. 
um, he did a huge amount of work suppressing that. In the end, he was so successful with his 1935-1936 budget that he was assassinated by members, ideological members of the Young Officers Movement, a brutal um, event that um, ended up with them ritualistically stabbing him in his bed. Uh, and really, that was the point at which Japan went downhill, lost civilian control, and the military took over with the outcome being um, Pearl Harbor. Going across the water, the next person you profile is H.H. H. Kung, who is China's finance minister and bank governor. Um, and he was one of the people uh, from the list that I was familiar with beforehand. And I was wondering if you'd tell listeners about him and why he was so important uh, in this era. Yeah, I mean, as you say, you go across the waters because that's exactly what Japan was doing, invading China at this time. And Chiang Kai-shek was running the Kuomintang, the nationalist military government, and he desperately needed money. In fact, the only thing he was really interested in was raising money so that he could fund his army and pay off all the various warlords and soldiers in that chaotic period of China at the time. And the person he had to do this during the 1930s was H.H. Kum, who had been a banker in China um, and had um, married into the famous Song family. One sister, his wife, was the richest woman in China. Um, second sister was married to Sun Yat-sen. Third sister was married to Chiang Kai-shek. They were a hugely powerful family. He was a sort of a, a smiley crook, really. He managed to raise funds from all sorts of legal and illegal taxes and and extortions um, and getting money out of business people, getting money out of peasants. He helped. He, he was helped in all of this by the Green Gang in Shanghai who had no compunction about any violence at all. He could raise money and also do deals um, on any basis. And there was always some money under the table for him and his family. And in that sense, at one stage, he was definitely the richest man in China, possibly one of the richest men in the world. And um, he later used his sort of charm and extortion to get money out of the U.S. to fight the communists uh, during the well, well during the war when arguably he should have been focused on fighting the Japanese. And that was a pretty brutal period, but he was a very effective operator in this discombobulated time. You connect uh, Kung to Hjalmar Schacht, who was Nazi minister of economics, uh, as he went to him to to seek out aid. Uh, and Schacht is a, is a very interesting person, uh, just kind of positioning him as, a per, as, as uh, playing a, a major role in Germany's recovery and then the eventual military buildup before World War II. Uh, and I was wondering if you'd talk about Schacht and what his views were, his approach to economics, uh, and ultimately uh, what his role and role would be in World War II. Yes, I think you could typify Schacht by saying he was a good economist, but not necessarily a good man. Um, he was a very stern, austere sort of guy. He'd um, been president of the Reichsbank, the central bank, in the um, in the Weimar Germany time, and he it was partly his policies that helped end that really damaging hyperinflation that was going on in Germany, which led to the Nazi um, administration taking over. Uh, for them, Gart, um devised various ways of raising funds to finance German rearmament, particularly what was called the MIFO bills, which were ways of getting money um, through to the industrialists and then it being banked by the Reichsbank in um, Berlin, and um, also doing counter deals with China and other places 
uh, which were really barter deals and all of this. He ended up, um, he was personally a pretty unpleasant guy. He ended up working for the Nazis, but actually in the end arguing with the Nazis, and they in the end um, uh, arrested him and put him in concentration camp, where he was outraged because he kept saying, I'm an economist. What am I doing in a concentration camp? The Americans put him up in Nuremberg, the Nuremberg World War Trial, and he was very nearly convicted um, there, but in the end got off again on the basis that he had, all he had been doing was good economic. So it's a sort of interesting tale of morality coming together and tension between them. What's interesting about your book is that each chapter uh, focuses on one of these different economists, but you're also following it chronologically. So uh, Schacht, when you start looking at Schacht, then it kind of crosses over to the actual start of World War II when you start examining Keynes. Uh, but up until this point, is there anything about the state of economics in general? Like, how would you uh, kind of classify the state of economics prior to World War II? Uh, how did it compare to what it would eventually become today? Yeah, it was quite primitive before World War II. And after World War II, there'd been a, or during World War II, there'd been a big increase in macroeconomic understanding, Patrick Keynes. There'd been a big increase in computing powers and big increase in what I would broadly call microeconomic tools, things like linear programming, other ways of getting the best out of a very limited sort of economy. So actually, the wartime period was a time when, first of all, governments grew huge than they had ever been. Of course, the militaries did, and military spending diverted from civilian to military um, arms and so on. And um, in addition, there were a lot of innovations through that period as well. Uh, and economists were, for the first time, really picked up in administrations and put to work. They hadn't been in those situations before. They'd been clerks. Um, they'd been sort of people who'd worked out supply chain. But this was really, in a, in a sense, sort of when the beginning of more modern economics started. John Maynard Keynes might be the most, one of the most famous economists of all time, maybe uh, of, of this period, and, and at least that you cover in this book. Um, and you know, instead of necessarily introducing who he was, uh, you know, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your thoughts on John Maynard Keynes, uh, just in general, his uh, approach to economics and his just transformative influence during this period of time. Yeah, well, John Maynard Keynes is a brilliant guy um, who's sort of everywhere through all these stories and um, arrogant, all-knowing, um, always prepared to put his views out there, sometimes change his views. Some of the views were quite clearly wrong, but he also contributed um, with some incredible innovations that are still there with us today. He um, had never actually done a formal economics degree. Um, he'd been around Cambridge uh, he, he did a philosophy and a statistics, um, but he pretty quickly made his mark right through the period. In World War One. he was there in the UK Treasury uh, working through um, an economy under wartime conditions. And of course, he was there at the Treaty of Versailles, where he ended up walking away from the negotiations between the Allies and the Axis powers about reparations, particularly German reparations, saying these are far too um, punitive they can never get paid by Germany. And by the way, they're going to lead to a huge amount of antagonism and the potential for war in the future. And that was just one example of him being right like that. But, uh, you know, in the by the time of World War II um, and in this book, he's out there writing about things like how to pay for the war. He writes a couple of articles for the Times newspaper 
um, the Times is a little bit slow in publishing them, and, and ironically, they get picked up by a Swedish neutral correspondent and published in the Frankfurt Daily newspaper. So the Germans and Helmar Schart read about them before the British do. But in a sense, this is classic Keynes because he's saying, well, look, you've got a war, and in the past, we just thought of ration as a way to handle this. But there's a whole lot of things you can do. You can pay for war by um, really by raising taxes. You can pay for it through rationing. You can pay for it through borrowing. You can pay for it through inflation. And any war, in fact, is probably going to be paid for by a mix of those things anyway. And as to which of those methods you choose, can make a huge difference whether it's the military or the civilians or future generations or foreigners who might bear the brunt of all these. And by the way, there's a macro economy going on in the background. And while we all get worried about inflation during wartime, there usually is inflation. He said, well, things like that are quite valuable. That's a price signal that says something is very scarce. If the price of meat has gone up, um, rather than just rationing it, um, that price signal has got some important um, messaging about the fact that we should be eating less meat during wartime. So he came through with a bunch of those um, arguments, uh, some of which the British government picked up on. And in addition, he was um, he did some important work at the time in the early 40s on the interne international clearinghouse. Because the other thing that happens at this time is international financial markets close down and capital markets close down. So while Britain could raise a little bit of money offshore, it couldn't raise very much. And countries like Japan couldn't. Um, but um, in addition, there's questions about what happens to the US dollar, what happens to sterling, what happens to exchange rate. And he wrote out some recommendations on all of that that broadly got picked up a couple of years after that in the Bretton Woods negotiation and put into the IMF. So he's he's everywhere. It's interesting to compare Keynes with the, the next economist that you profile, uh, Leonid Kentorovich from the Soviet Union, as just an economist who's ideas were, weren't picked up in the same way that Keynes was. So I was wondering if you'd talk about what it was like for, for Kantorovich to be an economist in the Soviet Union. It was hellish. Um, Kantorovich was a genius as well, a mathematician who did a lot of economics. Um, but he knew if he stood, if he was out of line, um, then the, 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 the great um, ghost of Stalin was hanging over all the economists at that time. Um, the story picks up when he's out actually on the ice during the siege of Leningrad, absolutely terrible condition. And he's testing the ice, trying to model whether or not the wind, the the air temperature, the um, ice thickness, and some other features would be enough to drive a military convoy over the ice. But um, he, he shortly after that gets involved in the rest of the war effort and, for example, he's asked by a factory in the Soviet Union how they should, a very basic thing, how they should cut up their plywood. They're making planes, very basic planes to fight the Germans with. And if they've got a certain amount of plywood, how should they best cut it up, get the most efficient outcome? And he works this out mathematically. And what he comes up with is what we now know as linear programming. He has invented linear programming in the world. The Americans will later reinvent it, but he is the first. A little bit later on, he gets into much wider production of a whole bunch of factories whose, whose production has been controlled by central planning, Gothplan, the, the Marxist-Leninist Soviet system. It's um, very inefficient after the war, but during the war, it is moderately efficient in helping the, the USSR get these supplies. And Kantorovich works out a system 
whereby you could basically program the whole of the economy to get the best outcomes, the best um, production of everything. And he puts this out there and immediately gets shut down by the party um, people who say, you can't do this, you've got prices in your system, Marx said there will be no prices, um, and he gets warned off this, and he's a very he's a he's a worried guy. He he he's seeing some of his colleagues being executed or sent to Siberia. He gets off it and goes back to mathematics, which is safer. Later on, after the war, he gets a Nobel Prize for doing that. And the other um, thing that he also gets pushed into is the helping with the Soviet atom bomb, and that's another story that goes on. So you also look at uh, Vasily Leontief and John von Neumann and the work that they did to to help win the war. Uh, and in the example, th- these are, are are sort of interesting ap- applications of economics that they uh, ended up applying. And I was wondering if you talk about Leontief and, and John von Neumann. Yeah, Vasily Leontief, as a Russian-American, uh, so many brilliant minds migrated out of Europe during this period into the US, and he's one of them. He was brought up very close to where Kantorovich was in Leningrad. Or, um, in in America, he's at Harvard, and he um, it gets picked up by the OSES, the American forerunner of the CIA, which is doing studies on the Russian economy, and he knows something about the Russian economy. And they're very worried about, is the, is the Russian economy going to survive the German invasion? Will it be able to survive the war? At that stage, the Americans are looking to help the, the Russian economy. And he does some very um, important work on that. But what he then does is he works out a way to map what an economy looks like. It's called input-output um, analysis, and we still do it today. And so he manages to actually build an input-output model on the American economy. He's the first economist to actually use a computer-based system for solving this. He goes into Massachusetts Institute of Technology down the road from Harvard, uses a big mechanical calculator to churn through um, all of this. And input-output modeling says um, the economy is producing these bundle of goods and services. To do that, it needs inputs from these bundle of goods and services. Where do these ones come from? And so on through the supply chain. The Americans then picked that up in Britain, where they were running the World War II bombing campaign on Germany and the Axis allies. And they wanted to map out the economy to say, where, what is the best way to aim our bombs to close down that economy? Where are the most crucial bits of production in this economy? And using a Leontief type input output model, they decided, first of all, ball bearing factories. There were only two ball bearing factories in the German excess economy. They went in and bombed them. Now, that slowed down production and a whole bunch of, of other wartime equipment that uses ball bearings, but eventually the Germans replaced that. Uh, later on, the American uh, went and, using the model, uh, identified aircraft factories and um, oil refineries and bombed those. And then later on in the war, just before D-Day, um, they worked out the most effective way to help the D-Day invasion was to bomb the bridges and rail sidings of the German railways, trying to move stuff around. So um, that was a way of looking at the economy as a whole and working out where the weak points after the war as the Cold War gathered pace, um, Leontief helped the German, sorry, helped the Americans do a much more sophisticated model to work out what about um, worrying about a nuclear-armed Soviet Union? Where where would you be trying to strike out there? And at the same time, 
the Soviets were doing the same thing. John von Neumann, uh, the, the, the final economist at your profile, is is really one of the most fascinating uh, people uh, ever. The, the amount of influence that he had in so many different fields is, is really incredible. And he had some very uh, you know influential economic ideas. Um, what do you see as as John von Neumann's uh, you know most important legacy and impact during this period of time? Yeah, well, a bunch of things. I mean, von Neumann was a, a freakish genius. Um, brought up Jewish family in Budapest um, before the war. Um, he, you know, party trick was to let seven year old von Neumann read one page of the Budapest telephone directory and then quiz him on everybody's names, addresses, and telephone numbers. Um, he left um, Europe when he saw the Nazi cloud coming through. He was at Princeton University, mathematician. The Americans got him to uh, set up um, and test various bombing devices during the war. Very complicated mathematics involved in all of that. They put him into Los Alamos in New Mexico to help with the war effort. He designed the bombing mechanisms on one of those big bombs on Nagasaki. Um, von Neumann um, was quite a right-wing, anti-Russian, anti-communist type, and he was saying, um, well, um, we've got the bomb. The, America, the Russians don't have the bomb, but they're going to get it in a couple of years. What are we waiting for? And behind that sort of argument was an economic development which is still very important today, called game theory that he had devised. So initially, for, he was saying, well, a lot of the modeling that goes on with economics, you're saying, what's the best way of doing something or how can a market work? But what about the situation which is contested where you're trying to do something, but there's somebody else trying to do something else? Typically, it's a game of poker, chess or something like that. But in wartime, it's not. It becomes very real. And your opponent is trying to work out what you're doing and counter it. So you should be trying to work out what your opponent is trying to work out and counter that, and you know that it goes on backwards and forwards. And this is gain theory. He worked out economic ways of doing that. And it was put into, into practice during the war by the American military and then after the war by the Rand Institute of California, which was probably the biggest and most important of the Cold War think tank. And it was very important there with U.S. nuclear armed, knowing that the Soviets sooner or later would be, and working out how you ran your strategies as a result of it. Now, one of the other things that von Neumann did was he developed electronic computing and really built what we call computing architecture today. In fact, trained his wife to be probably the world's first computer programmer. And so he had actually at Princeton built a very advanced computer, which was used in Los Alamos for the bomb and then became used for game theory as well. So he became very influential under Eisenhower and Nixon in the States um, in the, the, the Atomic Energy Agency. Ironically, um, in his lab at Los Alamos was a famous spy, Russian spy, who was feeding pretty much all the stuff back to the Soviets, and the Soviets in turn were giving it to Leonid Antonovich, who was working on what they called the Enormous Project, which was the Soviet bomb, which was advanced several years by virtue of the spies inside of what von Neumann and his colleagues were doing at Los Alamos. So it all sort of comes together, and it comes together um, really with the first years of the Cold War, when quite suddenly it's a different sort of um, conflict potentially going on, quite different from an economic point of view, different from in terms of all the tools that are being used as well as the But it's a time when economics is really out there and takes off.
looking back at at these seven economists, uh, you know, the the book goes up until 1955. So you know, we have we have all, nearly 70 years uh, on uh, today since since these economists were uh, working in their prime. Uh, when you when you look back at the work that they did, uh, are there any ideas or experiences that you feel are highly relevant for just looking at our our current economic global economic situation? Well, I mean, the macroeconomics of Keynes, which has been developed in other places as well, which is saying you've got a big shock like a military um, venture or threat, huge amount of money going into that's going to impact right through the economy. It's a general equilibrium system. It impacts everywhere. And you can, in turn, impact that by what you do with your money supply and your taxes and your spending, so macroeconomics. Then there's a lot around optimizing the best way to operate parts of an economy. And this is dynamic programming, linear programming, operations research, macro um, game theory, other microeconomic advances. And those really got picked up by the Americans and the Soviets in the early parts of the war with of the Cold War with the help of very fast developing electronic computers, which allowed you to calculate stuff you simply couldn't really calculate before in all of that. Um, there's other things, um, uh, trade restrictions and shortages, absolutely, with the sanctions. I mean, in the wartime, they're trying to sanction one another as much as they can, and we're seeing substitutes being made, synthetic materials being used and so on. Um, we're seeing the Americans using the Deontia system who say, well, we can bomb your factory, but we're also interested in how long it takes for you to build your factory, and you supply it out of Romania or Turkey or somewhere, um, is is there other substitutes for what they're doing? Um, can we build our tanks out of something else? So absolutely, there's a lot of um, current um, ways of thinking about all of that. And I'd say finally, um, this was the time when government systems grew from very small to very large. It happened very suddenly. Um, it was part of a big inflationary impact through the 1950s. It's part of what President Eisenhower called the military complex, and we still live with that in different forms today. It was also the time when there was less focus on just raw manpower. Um, nuclear arms meant a whole different economic way of um, very important technologies, but actually cheaper than old traditional armies as well. But then in the Ukraine today, we're seeing a reversion of traditional army and um, my, my final question for you is just reflecting on these economists, uh, especially through the lens of your experience as a practitioner, uh, just what the value is uh, for you or was for you uh, working directly with in economic and monetary policy setting that, um, how reflecting on these other people, other economist experience helped you uh, go through it and, and solve certain problems. Yeah, well, these other economists are in a different class from me. These these are geniuses. Uh, they're all people, actually, they're all people who had, with the exception of Keynes, some tough life experiences as well. So they had to do hard scrabble stuff to get where they got to, and they didn't necessarily have easy or, in many cases, happy lives. But what I have learned from those is that when there's rough stuff happening, um, you've got to keep you, you've got to keep calm. You've got to look at the possibilities, you've got to realize the stuff you don't know coming down the road, there's a lot of uncertainty. I've run the New Zealand Treasury during the global financial crisis. I've been involved more recently in the government administration during COVID, as have many other economists around the world. And what we have learned there is stuff that has come out of wars 
which is what von Clausewitz called the fog of war. You don't, economists like to know what's happening and what the probabilities. In these sort of big shocks like this, um, you don't necessarily know. And I will always remember the global financial. We don't actually know what's going to happen when the financial markets open up in or New York, um, you know, early next week. And we've got to be prepared for a range of different, circ of different circumstances. And even as you go through that, you're still um, struggling to really get a clear picture. It's only afterwards you really know what. And that is the same story as from these economists or two. Uh, Alan, you mentioned at the beginning that you are working on a new book now. I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about what you are looking at, thinking about, and, and what they can be prepared for. Yeah, well, it's a sort of sequel in a way. It's called Economists in the Cold War. It's the period from really World War II through to 1970. And it's a rough period um, when things like game theory become terribly important. The nuclear umbrella becomes terribly important. It's a time when economists are really pushed into um, uh, declaring themselves either left-wing or right-wing. They don't all do that, but it's very ideologically different. And uh, so there's a big underpinning argument. Do markets work, free markets work, or does central planning work? And there's some pretty interesting arguments go through all of that. And once again, I get out some half a dozen international economists taking the story through and arguing through to some things that I remember well, like the Vietnam War and that, that sort of impact. Um, that ends up, um, comes together right at the end in 1971 in Santiago, Chile, because at that stage, um, there's a socialist government run by Salvador Allende, and they're putting in place a bunch of socialist central planning techniques, and they've got computing to a new advance that has never been seen before, and they have hired a management consultant to build a central planning office that looks a bit like a Star Wars sort of unit, and they've got fax machines. He's... he's um, nationalized all the big companies. He put fax machines out in them. And every morning, a bunch of controllers send out faxes saying, produce this much left, left foot, right foot, lady shoes, man shoes, different sizes, great details of stuff. Like, we don't need the market. We can do it through that system. And this is the world get it, taking socialist planning to a new level. What happens, cut a long story short, is there's a military coup. General Pinochet comes in with his troops. They go into the central planning unit. They put bayonets on their rifles and smash all the monitors going on there. It's a ritualistic um, termination of central planning. Um, the the palace where Allende is is bombed. He dies. Um, he puts out a last plea for a socialist future. General Pinochet comes in, and with the help of um, Milton Friedman and what has been known as the Chicago Boys, who are a bunch of Galeans uh, who have studied at the University of Chicago under Ford Foundation scholarships for quite a long time. He turns it around from extreme socialism to extreme capitalism, and it's market free markets right through. And that's a sort of a bringing together of that big ideological debate. Well, I shouldn't say bringing it together. It throws it apart, really, and it's still partly with us. But it's, it's a very interesting period. Um, but one where this threat of warfare rather than warfare—that sounds fascinating. I, the uh, this the image of the of the bayonets uh, smashing the the computers. I, I can I can picture that uh, vividly. Uh, well, Alan, thank you so much for for being a guest on the New Books Network. 
via book is Economists at War, How a Handful of Economists Helped Win and Lose the World Wars from Oxford University Press. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Kevin.